I know that I am dealing with uh, some form of low-grade depression, not just because of the quarantine, but because of the racial strife. I think that there were times where I was really, really suicidal. Like, really, like, man, this is this pain ever gonna go away? Sadness and fear, it's clear that I can't see my path. If you're feeling a little lost and struggling these days, almost like we're going fast forward but in slow motion at the same time, you're not alone. Today on Context, it's okay not to be okay. Sadness and fear during this global pandemic is gripping all of us in the great unknown. Our collective grief seems almost palpable. There are no easy answers, no quick fixes or pills or escape buttons to push. But there is a healer. It's not magic. Not always the way we see it or want it, but God's love is tangible, guiding us and always in our midst. We need only to reach out. Today on the program, people share their hearts about their own struggles with mental health in order to help others, and we get some tips, especially for our children's mental well-being. We begin now with Maggie John's interview with Asante Houghton, whose brave story will inspire you. I used to pray to God to bring an end to the rain. I'm wondering if there would ever be an end to the pain. I'm feeling like, God, why don't you remember my name? To the point I didn't believe in heaven insane. I lost faith, even though I never should. Yup, I had a heart, but I should have understood. It was all a test that would make me stronger, but it hit harder than a dunk by Vince Carter. Santi, you call yourself a mental health advocate. Mm -hmm. How did you get to that stage where you felt like you needed to advocate for mental health? You know, for me, uh, I think it really came out of my own lived experience and, you know, then seeing my mom go through her challenges as well. And then, you know, I was a teenager, you know, early 20s when all that was happening. And then as I got older, I started to develop more perspective around what mental health challenges really looks like. You know, because you grow up and you really, you see on TV and the media and you say, oh, these are people who are just talking to themselves and hearing voices and all of that stuff and I mean certainly that's the case for a lot of people but for I would say more people who have mental health challenges it doesn't look like that and you know it happens in silence and then it looks like coping in other ways. Growing up in a culture also a black culture where you just don't share that information you don't share what goes on behind closed doors mm -hmm. you keep that to yourself and to your family mm -hmm. so you even sharing about your mom and her mm -hmm. struggles with mental health tell us about that as a young boy growing up in a home where you probably didn't know what was going on. Yeah, I mean, the first thing is I didn't know what was going on, you know, like when like my mom got diagnosed with depression way before any of, you know, me or my two older brothers knew what was going on. We just thought she was a quiet person who liked to spend a lot of time alone. Um, and then, you know, she had a incident where crisis workers showed up at the house because she was suicidal. And then, you know, we all found out what was really happening. And I was about 14 years old when that happened. And then for the next four or five years, she was really battling and really struggling. Um, then she started to turn the corner and get better. Um, then I was kind of focusing on my stuff. Anyway, I mean, uh, you know, what I remember from that time is that, you know, we just couldn't talk about what was going on with anybody. So I was going to school every day, you know, and people would see that, you know, there was maybe something not you know, just uh, there was something not stable or not okay um, about how I was presenting. But, you know, I didn't talk about it and I was getting good grades and I was still succeeding in other ways where, you know, I was captain of a basketball team or whatever. 
So, you know, people didn't delve too much into it. So it was easier to hide because I was doing, superficially, I was doing well, but realistically I wasn't. And so decided, or a couple times, wrote suicide notes. Three times. Three times. Three times. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I would say each time, I, you know, the thing I think people sometimes don't get about suicide is that you don't actually want to stop life. You want to stop suffering, right? And that's where I was at, is I wanted the suffering to stop. And I was very motivated to do something to make it stop, whether that's suicide or whether that's changing my life. However, the path to changing my life circumstances, especially when you're young and you don't have a lot of power in society or financial power or the ability to really make moves like that prior to the internet generation where now, I mean, there's a lot more ability to do that. Um, it, it felt like there was no way out. The more I live here, the more I die. Slowly at first, but faster now. Desperate, my soul clings to the light as I wallow in the fright of eternal night. Despite my fight, I cannot resist the cold that bites my bones whenever the sorrow wind blows. There was a turning point for you. And I, I feel like when I read your story, it was so simplistic, but it was so beautiful. It was seeing other young people enjoying life. Yeah, you know, so my best friend, um, his mom, what she does is she runs a daycare out of her, her place, right? So I like kids a lot. Um, I don't know, I just, I just like their energy. Yeah. So I would go over there all the time and help out, um, even when I was super depressed. And I remember there was just a moment where I was sitting on the couch and watching, you know, these kids play and just seeing how invested they were in life. Um, and they just had this like zest for living. And it made me think about my own childhood and how I was as a child, as you know, this very curious and precocious and, you know, kind of jubilant, high energy person. And for, you know, by the time I became a teenager and, you know, then young adulthood, I, I wasn't that person anymore and I forgot what that person was like. But then I saw those children and they reminded me of who I was before, you know, all the struggles of life started to pile up and, you know, manifest in depression and anxiety and suicidality. So I looked at those kids in that moment and it made me want to recapture that, that, that essence of, of just wanting to you know, be fully invested in my life. Uh, and at that point, I, I just said to my, I just took suicide off the table. And I said, yeah, it's really hard and I'm suffering a lot, but I'm gonna figure out a way out of this. I think sometimes people hear a story like yours or something, they think, okay, are you fine now? They think, you know, you just turn a switch. And mental health, mental illness is something that goes with a journey. And mm -hmm. there are gonna be good days and there are gonna be bad days. And so you making that decision that day, did that end everything for you? Did that bring back this normality in your mind? Or did you feel like, do you still battle with mental illness to uh, this day? I mean, yeah, I do. Yeah. Uh, you know, at that turning point moment, it probably took, you know, several years after that before I reached a baseline where I felt mostly okay most of the time. Um, which I would say is true now, uh, but it takes a lot of work to maintain. 
it's not like I just get up and I exist and I'm okay. It's very intentional um, in terms of the, the decisions and the choices I make in order to remain okay. You know, I need to be intentional about the people I have in my life and intentional about my relationships and setting boundaries and, and letting people know what, I, uh, what I'll accept and what I won't accept and um, being intentional about not isolating myself when I do feel myself going down and rather, you know, fighting the voice in my head. Thank you so much, Asante, for sharing your story with us today. If the black dog of depression makes you feel like the saddest soul on earth, you're not alone. Around 350 million people share this debilitating but treatable condition. If you're worried about someone, ask if they're okay. If you're not doing so well yourself, ask for help. There is no shame in doing so. The only shame is missing out on life. So get help, be helped, and always hold on to hope. One of the ongoing issues during this time of COVID is a collective level of grief due to losses by so many people. Andrea Warnick is a psychotherapist who specializes in grief counseling. Andrea, thanks for joining us today. Grief has been called the hidden health crisis. How is it impacting our mental health? Well, there's so much grief that's been experienced through the pandemic. You know, people are grieving job security, financial security, being with people that they're close to, and, you know, not being at being able to be at the bedside when their loved ones are sick or are dying. You know, and I think it's important for people to keep in mind that grief in and of itself is not a mental health crisis. Grief is a natural response to a significant loss. But when it doesn't get the right support, it can absolutely turn into mental health challenges. And that's why we think it's so important to make sure that people are showing up for people right now while we're all grieving. I think that's a great point. Grief is a natural part of our lives. So how do we make sure that we are grieving in a healthy way, that we're actually facing the losses that we've seen in our lives this year? Part of it is just finding space in our lives to, to do grief. One of the biggest parts of my job is convincing people that there's actually utility in allowing yourself to feel your feelings, to feel disappointment about that graduation that didn't happen or didn't look anything like you anticipated it would, to feel disappointed about not being able to be with your family members and, and grief at the end of their life and things like that as well. And I, I think part of what we're dealing with is there's this myth in our society that to allow yourself to feel vulnerability or sadness is a weakness. And it's very much about reframing that and actually understanding that as humans, we're designed to be able to go through great deals of suffering and survive it. But it's important that we make spaces to feel those feelings. Yeah, I think that's a great point. With over 13,000 deaths and, and going uh, across our country today, we're also seeing businesses being shut down and livelihoods being affected and relationships impacted, as you alluded to, Andrea. What is the answer to those who are seeing years of hard work being compromised? I don't know that there's a good answer, Maggie. It's a devastating situation, you know, and that's where I think it's just really important that for any of us who are, you know, have people in our lives who are grieving their livelihoods, their business that they put their heart and soul into and things like that, that we're really showing up for them and we're, you know, acknowledging 
through the heartbreak and and their devastation and everything else. And I think whenever possible, you know, for organizations and really, I wish it could be seen at the government level that it's important to be putting grief support in place for people so people are able to get access to good, well-informed support as they're grieving these losses. Because I think when we think of grief, we're thinking about uh, losing somebody. We're thinking about death. But there has been an element of just letting go of expectations, letting go of, of things that we had hoped for in 2020 as we're in the beginning stages of 2021. And maybe just, and I would love your, your input on this, maybe even rethinking the word grief and what that looks like in our own lives and how it's acted out. Absolutely. You know, and when I'm, I work with little kids too, and I always explain to them that, you know, grief isn't just when somebody dies, it's anytime we have a big loss in our life. You know, so that includes being so excited about going to summer camp and not being able to go to summer camp or to visit your grandparents and then not being able to see them for nine months or a year. You know, and that's where I think it's really important that we expand our definition and understanding of what grief is. It's any time that we have a significant loss. And so living through a pandemic has provided so much opportunity, you know, and so many reasons for people to be grieving on top of those who are also grieving, you know, deaths happening in the families, illness happening and not being able to be connected. Because I think one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that as humans, most of us are wired to want to be with and connect with others when the really hard stuff goes down in our lives. And the pandemic has created huge barriers to that and thus has created huge barriers to a healthy grief process. Yeah, that alludes to my next question. There's something about being physically with somebody in a world crisis like you know, natural disasters where people are coming together to support each other with a, a situation like this, um, where we're being told to stay apart. And how do you reconcile that? How do you find um, hope in that when you can't be physically close to somebody? That's where sometimes, you know, we've got to get creative in terms of what does that look like? Like the return to age old art of letter writing, you know, or sort, certainly Zoom. I mean, I know even some families I've worked with have actually some very meaningful and powerful memorials over Zoom. Um, but there's also just part of it that can't be replaced, you know, and it's knowing and reminding ourselves that this will not last forever, but also mm. making room for it to be hard and for us to miss those people in our lives and being with them in a physical and, you know, in a close proximity. And, and that's where, you know, I, I really hope that when we are able to be back together, that that's something that we won't be taking for granted in the way many of us, including myself, probably did for a yeah. long time. Yeah. You're, you're a psychotherapist, but you're also a nurse. Let's talk to healthcare workers and, you know, frontline workers. What's the advice that you're giving your coworkers who are frontline workers and just how to process this as they are seeing loss, they're, they are also have lost a lot, you know, this year as well, and just processing this grief that we're all seeing? One of the biggest things I'm encouraging people is to be gentle on themselves, you know? I mean, it's natural that we're going to see a whole lot of burnout and empathy fatigue and everything else right now. But I think it's so important, again, back to that piece around making some space to do grief. And often when people are seeing so many deaths happen in a close period of time, there can be what we call bereavement overload, where you don't have time to process it all. So when possible, you know, taking that pause, making space to do the feelings and everything else, not push them to the sidelines. 
but also for people in their lives to continue to acknowledge the people on the front line. We were really good about that in the first months of the pandemic, right. you know, and I find that now people have gotten weary and it's not as much on the forefront for many people. And that act of expressing gratitude to everybody on the front lines, there's tons of people making minimum wage and are on the front lines, delivering things, working in stores and everything as well really being able to express our gratitude for all of those people. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, organizationally, wherever possible, weaving in good grief support, where it's not necessarily, you know, the person who's exhausted on the front lines having to reach out and find someone to support them, but organizations helping making that easier for them to access those services. Oh, so good. Andrea Warnick, grief psychotherapist. And also, nurse, thank you, Andrea, for all of your hard work on the front lines. We so appreciate what you and all those who stand alongside you have done uh, for our country and our community. Thank you. Thank you, Maggie. My pleasure. Some Black men are suffering in silence when it comes to their mental health. Coming up on The queue, we take a closer look at why we see an increase in trauma, depression, and anxiety in the Black community. Like to watch more context beyond the headlines? Catch up on any of our shows online. On YouTube, search Context Beyond the Headlines for the most up-to-date episodes and extended content. Listen on the go with Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Check out our reporters and producers' stories at our website, context.show. Follow us on Instagram at Context Beyond the Headlines and Twitter at Context TV. There are so many ways to put more context into your life. Depression is the largest cause of disability worldwide. At worst, depression can lead to suicide. In humanitarian emergencies, one in five people are affected by depression and anxiety. Depression and anxiety lead to a global economic loss of one trillion US dollars per year. On average, just 3% of government health budgets is invested in mental health. Depression can be prevented and treated at relatively low cost. Treatment usually involves talking therapy or antidepressant medication or both. If you think you have depression, talk to someone you trust. Seek professional help. Depression. Let's talk. It's now time for the cue, an opportunity to dive deeper into part two of our mental health special. We turn to the black community where mental health experts are concerned, having seen an increase in trauma, depression, anxiety, even suicide in the communities they work in and live in. While Canadian statistics on the issue are hard to nail down, according to a report in the Journal of Pediatrics, it's reported that suicide attempts rose 73% between 1991 and 2017 among black high school students. And mental health experts are concerned as numbers are rising in the wake of the global coronavirus pandemic and the social unrest of 2020. While black men are usually seen as strong and sick, According to our panel today, black men are simply crying out 
for mental health support. Joining me today is Andrew Blackwood. He is a psychotherapist and Jermaine Morrison is a social worker and mental health advocate. Thank you both for joining us today. Jermaine, I'm gonna start with you. Why are black men seemingly suffering in silence when it comes to mental health? Um, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of reasons, but um, what I tend to find with uh, when it comes to mental health is that um, men are not really supposed to be seen uh, as having sort of issues with their like their own mind or or anything along those lines. Um, you know, growing up, um, the expectations you know for men, especially black men, you have to be strong, you have to be tough. Um, just you know, considering the elements of racism and um, a whole lot of oppressions that they're going to have to face. And so any element of weakness, um, I think exacerbates the fact that men who are suffering with things like depression or uh, anxiety or panic attacks, um, they pretty much have nowhere to turn to and they just get somewhat shunned off to the side if they display or even talk about things like that. Mm. Andrew, in your practice, what are some of the unique <laughs> Uh, issues that black men face uh, in society that maybe others don't? Well, it's an, an interesting sense of a lack of safety, sometimes mm -hmm. when it's in community, right? Like uh, Jermaine was saying, you're supposed to be strong, but then how do you how do you acknowledge that sense of a lack of safety to whether to go somewhere in conversation or just be yourself in a particular place and point of time? So we have that history of oppression and, and, and violence and aggression and things that is, it's part of our worldview, even though many of us might not have experienced a lot of that personal trauma, we still have it with us for generations. So it's got to go somewhere. So now we're at a place where I think there's a good opportunity to be grounded in a, in, in a more open time where we can actually talk about what we're experiencing, where we can actually learn to understand how things have impacted us from the past so that we can move forward differently. You bring up a good point, Andrew, and I want to hear what you have to say, Jermaine, especially about talking. Um, you know, I think most wives would say their husbands don't talk very much. And in, in talking to Asante earlier uh, in the show, he talked about just the cultural aspect of uh, in a black community, um, communicating how you're feeling, communicating that you might be suffering through depression aren't things that are normally done in the black community. Jermaine, what are your thoughts on that? It's hard to, um, especially when you, there isn't an environment of trust and, and openness. A lot of the times if, if something's happening, um, you know, for example, words, words have a lot of power. And so when you hear things like it's not a big deal or, you know, almost like suck it up type of attitude mm -hmm. uh, towards somebody that's really dealing with something that's traumatic for them, um, it's really hard to open up. And it's, it's, a, it's a lot of layers. Uh, so even when, like, for example, if a black man's in a relationship, an intimate relationship, um, for that partner, it's hard to actually like really start opening up those layers as to why, you know, a black man or somebody in an intimate relationship um, is suffering the way that they're doing. Um, so it really takes a lot of patience. 
Um, I think for Black families, it, it would behoove us to really start early as to allowing an environment where kids can openly speak in a respectful way, in a loving way, but not be afraid to express their feelings and really um, walk with them through their emotions. Because sometimes that's the piece that, that gets missing where if, for example, um, a black grade two uh, boy starts to cry, um, we need to walk with them, let them know, yeah, it is okay to cry and walk with them to see what is it or what are the triggers that made them so upset. Hmm. Andrew, we are seeing um, really scary suicides. They're approximately three times higher of men um, taking their lives than women. Um, a spike especially around 40 to 59 years old. Uh, and while we don't have specific um, statistics on black men, we are seeing an issue when it comes to men who are choosing to die by suicide, especially uh, middle age men. What are the warning? Like, this is obviously a warning sign. Uh, what are these issues that I'm dealing with that are, are causing this spike, especially at this time of uh, in their lives? You know, it, it's interesting because with men and men in our community, you're gonna miss one of the morning warning signs because that's typically how we are. We're we're silent, we're quiet about things that trouble us. So whereas in some people you would notice a withdrawing, that's gonna be absent. You're not gonna notice that significant telltale sign. Um, one of the factors I think um, in all the cases where people who have attempted um, uh, suicide and um, are still here with us when we kind of talked that through, there was that sense of isolation. It was mm. the reality that this had been building for a long, long, long time. And it's not just as a result of one issue. So I think what Jermaine was talking about and what we all been talking about, communication is key. Healthy communication is also healing communication. And I think when we start to understand not just the not just the power of words, but the meaning of words and how that intersects with how we think, right? It's the thoughts that we have over and over and over that really get us stuck. It's the, it's the perspective that we have, that we hold. Because anybody that I've talked to once again, and I can even imagine the people who I haven't had a chance to talk to, there was a sense of powerlessness, an idea that I can't change this and I am alone in this. There's no point, right? That's the internal dialogue. If we were able to hear that out loud, right? And then also know how to respond to that. Because just because we tell somebody, you know, there is a point, that doesn't change the fact that they think the way that they do, right? That's the whole beauty and the process of connecting with someone um, in a formal capacity who understands how thoughts work. And that's the beauty of getting that information out to people. Um, so we're not just waiting for people to come to us. We're trying to have the dialogue and move things to platforms where we can talk to people about how do you understand your thoughts? What does it mean when you feel this? What's the difference mm -hmm. between stress and what's the difference between anxiety? Because not having these is impossible because you are a human, but how do you respond to that? 
right? How can you impact change in your personal body, your personal sphere, your professional sphere? It, it all comes down to what we understand about ourselves and how we choose to live. And we have a choice, but if we're not aware of what that choice is, if we're not empowered on how to use that choice, then it's as if we don't have it. All right, we're gonna leave it there again. Dr. Andrew Blackwood and Jermaine Morrison, thank you both for joining me today. Thanks everyone for watching our two-part special on mental health. We all have come through a devastating year and 2021 hasn't started off any better, but the key to staying healthy needs to be relying on our faith, others, and a reminder to not suffer alone. Thank you all for watching. We couldn't do this program without our amazing team behind the scenes or you, our donors. If you'd like to continue to ensure Christian analysis on the news, go to our website, context.show, and find out how you can become a donor today. Thanks for watching. Bye.